This is, uh, we really don't have a whole lot of a plan for this, for this event, but what we're going to accept to just have a conversation with you guys. So uh, in a moment, we'll briefly introduce ourselves. And then there are two mics. There's a mic over here and a mic over there. And then the front line of seats on each side is, um, is aspirational, <laughs> uh, assuming we would have that many people who want to ask questions. But you can, you can line up. In other words, if someone's at the mic, just sit down there in, in the line rather than standing. So let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll introduce ourselves. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, the chance to gather together as brothers and sisters around your word. And I thank you for the sessions that have already taken place where we've learned so many new things. We've met new friends. We've been encouraged and challenged. We pray you would continue to bless our gathering, um, that there would be an excitement and a joy uh, brought about ultimately by your spirit who lives in us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, uh, I know many of you, most of you maybe, but um, my name is Rob Plummer, and I'm the host of The Daily Dose of Greek, which uh, maybe we'll tell the story of that later, but I think it's about eight years old now, and and when I uh, think about these other, these men who work on it with me and the many others who participate, it's, it's honestly humbling and amazing. Uh, that God has given us this opportunity, this stewardship to help others, and, and what a joy it is. And uh, so, all right. I'm, I'm Adam Howell, and uh, I am the host of Daily Dose of Hebrew. Uh, this is just finished my sixth year teaching here, primarily at the undergraduate at Boyce College. So. I'm Scott Callahan. I'm the dean of the Institute of Public Theology in Cape Coral, Florida, and we're coming up on two years of Daily Dose of Aramaic in September. I'm Tyler Flatt, and I do the Daily Dose of Latin, and I lead the Latin program here at Boyce and for Southern students. Good. Well, again, the agenda for this is whatever you want to talk about. If your question is too strange, we'll probably just dodge it. But anything <laughs> anything is, is cool, so just... We'll send it to Tyler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, any, if you're on Zoom, you can just unplug. You'd be like, technological difficulties. But here, we have to fake it better. So yeah, question. So I've had people in my... And when you come up, just if you wouldn't mind, just say your name, maybe where you're from. So. John Majors. I'm a pastor here in Louisville. And I've had people in my church mention just interest in Greek and wanting to learn more. I know you have uh, a program posted on the Daily Dose of Greek site. Is, do you recommend just taking them through that, or is there an ideal situation for teaching Greek in your church from your perspective, or any of the languages for that matter? Okay. Uh, the, I know you've, I thought you were, you know some people doing stuff in Hebrew in local churches, I know. The, um, yeah, I would, uh, short answer, I go to beginninggreek.com, which, which puts in one place videos, songs, memory devices, tools, all key towards the beginning Greek grammar. I mean, you can use other grammars, but obviously I'm, uh, the materials I have created are key to that. And um, I think the most important ingredient is to have a leader who's excited about it and who's committed. So even though you might not feel like you know much more than they do, as long as you're, you're you know, one day ahead of them and you're excited and committed, uh, you love them, you can take them through that. Um, I do hear from people, emails, usually all over the world, people are doing this. There are churches where pastors and others have, uh, have started small communities reading together. In fact, if your church, if you're part of a, a small reading group in your community with other Christians, raise your hand. Let's see, if there are any of you? Well, I see one, two, three, four, five. So, yeah, so you have seven or eight small groups. Anyone, do, anyone who's in the group here who's part of such a group, would you, li would you like to add to that? It'd be nice to see someone want to add something from their own experience. No? Thank you. This is for Adam. Uh, after you completed Hebrew in the Daily Dose, why did you pick Deuteronomy? And even more so, why did you start with Chapter 12? <laughs> My bad. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Um, so after Song of Songs, um, I bounced back to Deuteronomy 12 several years ago. It, it's shocking how fast these years go by when the video, like you can get a stockpile 
and they're gone like that. Um, so they go by very quickly. Uh, and it, I, it was several years ago I did Deuteronomy 1 through 11. And I kind of had in mind, let's do Deuteronomy. I've got to do something for the rest of my life. So let's start in Deuteronomy and keep going. And I got to about chapter 11, which was a good break in the book, and thought to myself, I, it might be time to switch gears a little bit and give Deuteronomy a rest and do something different. Um, so, so now I'm coming back to Deuteronomy, and so I just picked up in, in chapter 12. And um, what, part of what was behind that idea was um, Baylor uh, University Press in their Baylor Handbook series. Uh, Bill Arnold just came out with a new volume in that series on Deuteronomy 12 to 26. So I saw that and thought, eh, let's go back to Deuteronomy. Hi, I'm Derek. I live here in Louisville. I was a student here some years ago, and uh, maybe things have changed, I don't know, but back then, uh, everybody had to take the biblical languages. But then in our other classes, we didn't use it very much, if at all, because it was assumed maybe you hadn't taken it yet or something. But I would have really liked to have seen it integrated more. I don't know, maybe there'd be a student rebellion against that, I don't know, but do you have thoughts on... Because uh, we're in the Bible all the time, but we're, we're just doing English, and all of us have the potential to have studied. Yeah, I think, I think it's at Westminster, isn't it, where they, they take all the biblical languages first, and then the uh, upper level or the, even the survey classes assume a knowledge of them. So part of, part of the challenge here would be we have MA students who, won't take, who are not taking the biblical languages in many times in the uh, survey classes or English Bible classes um, alongside MDiv students. So that, I think that's a, yeah, that's a valid um, concern. Um, I, I, I was actually just reading over the plenary address I'm gonna give tomorrow, and it's about behavioral psychology and habits and things like that. And um, it makes me, your question made me think about one of the challenges of, uh, I'm gonna set this down so I don't drop it. One of the challenges of uh, getting people to sign up for retirement plans is they do, they don't do it right, uh, and so one of the <laughs> there's a, this paper by a Yale finance professor with it seems like a, such an obvious conclusion. <laughs> it's like one way to really improve this is to automatically enroll people, <laughs> and and then they have to opt out rather than inviting them to enroll. And it's a huge increase in the amount of people who actually save for retirement if you just automatically enroll people and they have to opt out of retirement. Wouldn't it be interesting if we automatically enrolled people in a master's program that had biblical languages and they had to opt out of that? That would be, be interesting. You guys have any thoughts? Um, I was just gonna say that uh, I believe that RTS in Jackson, Miles Van Pelt, uh, those guys do a, an intensive summer languages. So like one year is Greek, one summer is Hebrew, one summer is Aramaic. And then the expectation is then in the semesters you'll be using the languages. So that does happen uh, in, in places. In my particular, in my classes at the undergraduate level, I actually use Hebrew in the survey classes in order to entice the students to take Hebrew. Um, you know, here's what you could do with this. And... So, you know, there's not an expectation that they would know it, but uh, I, I don't shy away from using it in a, even a survey class with 18-year-olds, so. Well, I, I can't speak to how things are done at Southern or Westminster or RTS, but uh, something to combat against, I guess, is the idea that as Americans, we do just fine with one language and we're not naturally good language learners or something like that. It's really... It's kind of an English language issue, too, because we speak the world's most spoken international language. So we kind of feel we can get by just with that. And we have, we've heard before about their great English Bible translations, et cetera, et cetera. The thing is, though, that uh, from a worldwide perspective, this is a very weird way of thinking because you have truck drivers in Central Asia, for instance, who know three or four languages, and they never actually spent a lot of time learning them. They just learned them because they had to. You know? So what would happen if we felt more like, you know, we must learn these languages? We have to. 
and then you know, kind of have that as the driving force behind what we're doing in class, developing a passion for the languages by just showing these are the fruits you know, throughout our training. Hi, I'm Ryan. I'm a layman from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And this one is for Scott and uh, also maybe Adam. Is there a certain degree of proficiency that you would say is uh, like you're good enough at Hebrew, now you can pick up Aramaic, or is, is it kind of something you can pick up and study separately? Okay, well, so I think probably the best thing is to go ahead and take Hebrew first. At least that's my, my objective and how I wrote the textbook back there at the Glossa House table. Um, because then you're, you're following along with the stream of everybody else who's learning the Hebrew alphabet and getting down what I call the Semitic language scaffolding that you can just transfer very naturally over to Aramaic. Now, in theory, a person could build that scaffolding in Aramaic and transfer it to Hebrew, but that's not just how our educational structures, especially in theological education, are built up because the off-quoted statistic is that, well, it's really only 1% of the Old Testament that's in Aramaic, so if you only live long enough to do one of the Old Testament languages, you should probably get the 99% one first. So just assuming that you're going with the flow and doing that, it seems to me that after you just get the basic grammar down that you would normally do in one year through any of the major grammars that are out there, you're ready for then using what you've learned in a actually not that long a period of time to pick up the other language of the Old Testament. And there are all kinds of reasons why a person should do that. Maybe uh, to, to hear me say that, you should come to Aramaic for everyone tomorrow. But all kinds of reasons why it's good for you to take uh, Aramaic feeding back even into your, your Hebrew knowledge. So I think about a year to answer your question would be a, a great time. And then even in parallel with when you're taking Hebrew exegesis, because you get the fruits of your Aramaic study in your interlanguage kind of thinking as you're applying what you've learned in Hebrew grammar to your biblical interpretation. I second that. And, and we're going to give away three of your Aramaic grammars at the end of the plenary today. So hang around. We're going to give away some more cool stuff. Hello. My name is Joshua Coe. Uh, I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm currently enrolled in Southern's online MDiv. Go Braves. <laughs> amen. It's <laughs> the first amen I've got. <laughs> Would you, you second person plural, be willing to share one of your favorite insights from your language? I won't overqualify that, but maybe something that's exegetically significant, if possible. But as far as ministry or teaching, what is one of the insights that has stuck with you that's memorable, useful? Yeah, we, if, uh, I'll start off so you guys can think a little bit about this. So in the, in the beginning Greek grammar that Ben Merkel and I co-authored, at the beginning of each chapter, there's a exegetical insight where we try to give, you know, here's, a, here's an example of how this really affects um, reading the text. And if you, anyone, anyone get the new A.T. Robertson Secret Society t-shirt? It says on the back, I've never looked in the Greek New Testament for, you know, more than five minutes without, without seeing something I'd never seen before. And so I think any, any text that you're preparing for a sermon or a conference talk or Bible lesson, the more you look at it, the more you study it, the more um, it, will, it will open up to you. So one that comes to mind, I just, when I was speaking in chapel on campus in a, a sermon I gave in chapel, I was preaching from uh, Matthew, I think it was Matthew 15, where the Canaanite woman passage, right? And so it's interesting that the, the Bible I was preaching from, it rearranged the order of the woman's uh, address to Jesus. Whereas in the original language, it's increasing shocking things that she says to him. You know, she's Canaanite. And she approaches him and says, you know, uh, she calls him Lord. She calls him, she asks him for mercy. And then she calls him the Messiah. <laughs> a Canaanite woman calls him the son of David. And, and that, that escalation is so visible, clear, clear in the original 
but but maybe they, some editor thought, oh, it sounds better to you know have the appeal for mercy at the end of addressing you know. But but I think there was a there was a loss. So it's just one small example, but there's a loss of of uh, nuance. I think just going with the English translation. So if you've taken Hebrew before, you probably know that there's a verb that typically gets translated serve. So it's the ayin bet dalet verbal root. Now, when you come over to Aramaic, it's a very related language. There will often be words of the same verbal root that have similar meaning, but you can't naturally just assume that. You have to read contextually and so forth. Uh, this is a case where um, the Ayan bait dalit verbal roots a false friend actually in, in Aramaic, meaning it, it means something different. However, there is a word uh, in Aramaic for this serve idea. So check this out, first read in the ESV in Daniel 7.14. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. So what is this? serving in Aramaic, it's the pei lamed chet, verbal root. Now what's, what uh, gave me chills, I guess, when I looked at this the first time, uh, Daniel 7.14, and taking seriously what it says in Aramaic there, is how is this pei lamed chet used elsewhere in biblical Aramaic? Well, every time, so we set this one aside because we're comparing to everything else, every time it has to do with a god serving, we, we will not serve your gods, say, you know, Daniel's three fr friends, as they're standing probably feeling the heat of the furnace in their face. You know, no matter what happens, you know, God may bring us out of this, you know, but we will not serve your gods. Every other time, it has to do with serving a god. So look at how strange this seems to be for the famous Son of Man passage in Daniel 7, 13 and 14 especially, this one like a Son of Man. So the like is actually very important there and tends to get um, left out sometimes in our, in our thinking. It comes right after there are these beasts that look like you know, a lion and so forth coming out of the sea. Well, lions don't belong in the sea. You know, so it's like a lion, this, this sort of thing. Well, now you have this one who's like a human in heaven. Well, ones like humans are not supposed to be in heaven. You know, it's, it's just this out of place kind of thinking, but there he is. And what's happening? Well, he's being brought before the Ancient of Days. And then you get to Daniel 7.14. The, the reason why this is happening is that all these peoples, nations, and languages might serve him the one like a son of man. And you're like, what in the world? I mean, because this kingdom that has no end is being given to him. How can the Ancient of Days give his kingdom to others? And then later in Daniel 7, it's made clear the Ancient of Days still has this kingdom. He's not giving it away, so to speak. It doesn't leave him, but at the same time, it's given to this one like a son of man. How can that be? And then how can you worship this son of man, how is that okay? So I think it's pretty obvious that the Aramaic of Daniel 7, 13, and 14 is background to Jesus using son of man as one of his titles. And it's, it's not the ignore the Old Testament approach of saying, well, it just means a human being, you know, and thus not emphasizing at all his divinity. Well, read Daniel 7, 13, and 14 and say that, yeah. you can't. So that's, that gives me some shivers. Yeah. <laughs> I think we should save mine for the end, but it's up to you. Okay. Tyler wants to save his till the end. It better be a good one. Oh, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. Um, I, I, I'm sitting here racking my brain for a good one. I feel like you, this is one of those questions that, for at least for me, because I can't remember much, but as I'm reading through, I know I see these things all the time, but I can't. But the one that, the one that keeps coming to my mind is, is Deuteronomy 6.5, to love the Lord with all your me'odecha. Um, I mean, it just, it, it just 
it is like I have a wood carving of Meldecha, Uvechol Meldecha in my office that just it's that one sticks with me with all your variness. So that one, uh, yeah. Well, I would say if if you want to understand the critical apparatus in your Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic texts, you need to know some Latin. Uh, and if you're interested in what anybody has thought or said about the Bible between the first century AD and the 18th century AD, then you should learn some Latin. But as far as direct insights into the text are concerned, we can't offer that on the daily dose because it's not, strictly speaking, one of the languages in which the Bible was composed. But if you're interested in the tradition and the community that animates the whole heart of Western culture around the Bible, then you should learn Latin. Could you please provide us with one example? Yeah, yeah. Great. Sorry, was there a second oh, question? Was there another sorry. question? I was just going to ask if you could please provide us with one example. <sighs> Extra biblical is okay. I mean, I'll give you this. So one thing I've gotten from the Daily Dose of Latin that was unexpected is, uh, many of you probably know this, Jerome wasn't the first person to translate the Bible into Latin. There's what we collectively call the Old Latin Bible. It wasn't just one book, though. It's bits and pieces of the Bible that were translated into Latin, probably ad hoc, by bishops in all the different towns and, and priests and, and so forth. And one thing I've learned is most of Jerome's readings are very conservative. He, pre he preserves the old Latin readings whenever he can. And those people, whoever they were, uh, the only way I can describe the way they treat their attempt to render the Greek text or the Hebrew or Aramaic one, because I'm the only one who can do any book of the Bible in the, my daily dose. Uh, not that I have yet. We've just been at John the whole time, but just wait, just wait. Anyways, I'm just teasing these jokers up here. But um, I, I've been so impressed. I've said, if you, if you, if you, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but daily dose of Latin subscribers know I say so often, um, this is scrupulously faithful to the Greek to an amazing degree, given that Latin is a different language, right? So I've been impressed over and over again with the loving care and incredible attention to detail of these nameless bishops and priests and servants of the Lord who are serving their congregations uh, as best they could. That's amazing to me and a great heritage. Thank you all. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Hello, I'm John. I grew up in Western Kentucky, but haven't lived here for 20 years. Went to Gordon-Conwell, um, got my MDiv and THM there, THM in Historical Theology. I've been a youth minister in Phoenix for the last six years. Um, and uh, I, did, I did intermediate Hebrew, intermediate Greek, you know, did a lot in, and did Aramaic as well at Gordon-Conwell. And I was really determined, I'm going to hold on to these languages. Um, and honestly, daily dose of Greek really, really helped and not just totally losing it because I got into what I said I wouldn't of the busyness of ministry and I just couldn't figure it out. I remember Tim Keller talking about when you finish, in seminary you get, it's like you get all these logs piled onto a fire and the fire almost goes out. And he said after, after that you need to take the logs off and start putting them on, back on one at a time. Um, and so I've been trying to do that and Biblical Mastery Academy has helped with that greatly. My Greek is probably better than it was now. My Hebrew and Aramaic, sadly, is, I mean, I read through the whole, all of the Aramaic text, and I'm ashamed now. <laughs> but, um, uh, and I, I'm happy to see I'm not the, uh, the oldest person here, so I think this question might be relevant for other people. I'm, you know, I'm six years into ministry, I probably have 20 or so more years to go. Um, there's, you know, there's lots of options, doctor ministry, PhD, really wanted to do languages. I did my THM in historical theology. You know, when you guys brought on Latin, I was so excited about that. It's like, oh, I can finally learn Latin too. Uh, but, but you can only do so many things um, and only do so many things really well. And, and so I, at this point, just feel pulled in so many directions. Like, so I, I'd like to hear some wisdom about, there's so many great things that we can learn that help us to grow in our knowledge of the Lord and to, to minister well to, to, to our churches. Um, what do you, what's some wisdom for um, how to choose between all these incredible, wonderful, faithful options? I would, um, <clears throat> I don't know if this is fantastic wisdom, but I would probably just say something along the lines of um, 
consider consider what is like what is the expected level that you feel like you should be at with all of these different things because if all you do is subscribe to daily dose of Greek, daily dose of Hebrew, daily dose of Aramaic, and daily dose of Latin, and of course that's not the only way to skin this cat, but like the you're looking at eight minutes a day. Well, mine are a little longer, so <laughs> ten minutes a day. You know what I'm saying? And like, and I tell students all the time. I told the, the class this week: set your, you know, do a little bit every day. Set your phone for 10 minutes and read the Hebrew text for 10 minutes. And so, you know, between all of those, and again, you're dividing out your time, but, you know, at what level are you wanting to be with each of those languages? And don't dismiss, don't dismiss the fact that two minutes a day in each of these is getting you somewhere, you know, and, and again, you know, then you would have to kind of prioritize long-term goals and how much you're wanting to know. But I guess I would say don't dismiss the little bit you could, little bit of progress you could make by thinking, I can't get there, and then you don't do anything, you know. I would encourage you, for each one of us in here, it's a lifelong journey, and all of us will feel um, that we are not doing all that we want to do. So I don't know if you've ever read the little short story by J.R.R. Tolkien, The Leaf by Niggle. Have you read that? Leaf? Yeah. So for those who haven't read it, you know, it's a, it's a metaphorical type story where this guy, he's, so this would be us, right? He's trying to paint. Every time he's trying to paint, he gets interrupted. His neighbor always needs him. All this stuff. Suddenly these people come along and rush him away. And this canvas he's been working on, they're like, oh, the neighbor needs this to fix their roof. So this masterpiece he's been working on is taken away and is put on someone's roof to stop the rain. And then he's swept away in this train, sort of metaphor for sort of death. He's, you know, and it's dark. We'll, we'll skip the purgatory part, okay, because we're not Catholic. <laughs> but then he emerges into this beautiful field and the tree that he was always trying to paint and he could never paint, it was all there. And it's, it's a, I think it's a picture, you know, Keller loves this story too. It's a picture of our, in, the, in this life, our work is incomplete. It never measures up to what we want it to be. But we seek to be faithful, and we trust that uh, the Lord will take it. And somehow in the renewed creation, uh, we will be what he, fully what he wants us to be. But um, come to the, come to the admit, sign up for the admissions luncheon tomorrow if you want. We've had people who've come to this, revived their languages, and are now in our Ph.D. in biblical studies. Uh, Clint Archer, I don't know if Clint's here, but um, he's someone who... He was pastoring and let things slip, and then he came back and got it back, and, and now is, uh, is working on that. Do you guys have anything you want to add? Well, so a fantastic piece of advice that my doctoral advisor gave me after finishing my Ph.D. I was heading off to be an active-duty U.S. Navy chaplain, so I wasn't going to be in a study. I was going to be on an aircraft carrier. Yeah. He, uh, he told me what you should do is you should read every day. That's what he said. So, you know, of course, the daily doses give you that opportunity. His meaning, I took it also to meant use it in ministry. And so as I was preaching on the aircraft carrier, I was going through use, making wise use of resources and preaching from the Greek New Testament. You know, not that this is my specialty at all, you know. So that's, that's why I'm saying that, you know, we're probably coming to such a question from the standpoint of someone where it's not their specialty, Right. So it's not my specialty, but I'm doing it, you know. Yeah, and I, just for the sake of completeness, I'll put a word in there too. I, I'm sure your, the emotions you're expressing, I think probably stand in for what many people in this room feel. That's why you're here, right? If you were all completely satisfied with your mastery of Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and Latin, you wouldn't need to be here, right? Weren't, none of us are satisfied with our mastery. I'm not even sure we would use the word mastery. Any of us would feel comfortable doing that. But I would just say, I'd say to you what, what I say to myself and has been said to me by others, which is, um, you're going to live forever. There's going to be time. There might not be time now. Um, but, but God's not calling you to be Leonardo da Vinci who could do everything with perfect excellence. Although, goodness knows, he probably couldn't. You, you've just got your row to hoe, so hoe your row, and there will be time for the rest, I think. 
I think the God who gave you your tongue means for you to use it in the new body too. It's not just for this life. And, uh, and Latin is the language spoken in heaven. So you, uh, don't worry. You don't even, you can wait till you get there to start, you know. I, Zeph and I would disagree. That, that eschatological pure speech. Yeah. Revelation, it's quite clear that Greek is... Shalom. I'm Doug Smith. I'm from Bristol, Virginia. I teach, preach, research, and people call me a professional student. Uh, but I love Latin, uh, or I want to love Latin, I should say. That's my next one. But I love Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, and uh, I am sure, like many others, uh, had a turnaround. Daily Dose was a huge, huge part of that to revive and to retain. Doug, you just graduated, right? I'm just about to. About to. Okay. Yes, sir. Yeah, finishing up a, a PhD with Hebrew and Greek. So, uh, but this was a huge part of that all along the way. And uh, but I had a a time. I had to have that turnaround because I had this despair. I, I totally gave up biblical language study at one point. And I just wanted the panel. Did any of you have an experience like that? And if it's too personal, that's okay. The alternative would be if you wouldn't mind someone positively who just pulled you along, whether it was a teacher, a peer, a resource, something like that, if, if you wouldn't mind just sharing, because maybe somebody here could use a little nugget of hope to, to hold on to that each of you might have. Yeah, I mean, the thing that, one thing that comes to mind is I had the opportunity to, to study Greek in college, so I, I, um, when I started college, I thought I wanted to be a diplomat. I thought I wanted to work uh, the U.S. Department of State and travel around the world and live in embassies. And, and, um, and then uh, God got a hold of me in college and started uh, taking religion classes. It was a very secular environment. I realized I needed to understand Greek to, to, to just counter what I was hearing. So I took Greek in the divinity school and got you know, pretty good proficiency. And then, then I went to China. So trying to learn some Chinese, living in China, I did slip a lot, right? And so uh, then when I came back and went to seminary, there was a, I got to get back to this, I got to revive. Uh, why, why didn't I, you know, why didn't I read my Greek New Testament when I was in China like I, like I should have? So yeah, I've experienced that. I would give an example of someone who kind of came alongside and just kept kept bringing me with him and uh, is T.J. Betts, who's a professor here. He did the uh, Jots and Tittles sessions this afternoon. Uh, just an academic mentor to me. Um, I was his TA for about probably seven and a half years and just good friends to this day. And he, you know, really just kind of kept me going along that, that road. So I don't know that I've had a crisis moment where, you know, I'm just, you know, I keep everything as it should. Sharp. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I don't remember, I, but it's probably because I don't, I kind of try to wipe those things under the rug. But yeah, Dr. Betts has really been a, a stalwart for me over the years. Don't feel obligated. You guys good? Okay. All right. I almost quit uh, my second year of Latin. I had a This is a common experience, unfortunately, with Latin. I just had a, a, a really bad teacher who the first time that we were presented with unadapted Latin text thought it'd be a good idea to remove all the punctuation because it just build character and, and strengthen our grasp of syntax if we had no punctuation to help us. And I got so frustrated with it. My, my older brother had to speak into the situation and he said, I think you hate this experience, but you love the Latin language. And as soon as I heard it, I said, yeah, that's right. So don't, I think it's easy to confuse, and, and every language classroom, there's defects. N none of us, I've learned this from Dr. Plummer, who's a great example. You ask him, how many courses do you teach that you're perfectly satisfied with? And the answer is zero, because he's always thinking of ways to make them better, right? So you're gonna get a defective linguistic education, always. There's gonna be something that's, <laughs> something that's not perfect. Your teacher should have been more passionate. The and you can come to the prospective student lunch tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> It's not going to be perfect, but I think making that distinction is really important, saying, what am I chasing here? Is, is it my experience this semester or, or this week or this year when I've got barely just a little bit of time to devote to Greek? Why am I doing this? And, and I think each of us would say love. Love is the reason to keep going on, on multiple levels, right? As the moderator, I'm looking at the time and thinking that 
for additional questions, we'll just let one person respond because we don't want to get in the habit of each responding. So uh, if we need to, more can, but let's go ahead. Yeah, my name is uh, Patrick Cole from East Tennessee, uh, Johnson City, um, and prospective MDiv student. So uh, our culture, you know, is swimming in the waters of secularism, scientism, and, you know, as far as biblical studies, uh, higher criticism, um, and I guess philosophical naturalism, too. What, when it comes to the languages, this is so an apologetics question, um, how would you all respond um, to when people say, uh, I mean, Bart Ehrman might be a good example, when there's, when there's variation in the language, and then us being able to exegete correctly you know, theology from it, right, and being able to do that accurately in, in the midst of variation, or maybe there's, enough, there's actually a lot of harmony. So what, what's the, how do you all answer that? Everybody's looking at me. <laughs> so I guess I need to say something. The, um, yeah, so it sounds, as I'm listening to you, it sounds like it's sort of a hermeneutical question of how can we be certain our interpretation is accurate? Like how can we... Uh, when we're disagreeing with someone else, they look at Daniel 7. In fact, I lived with a roommate in college, and this was a, he was Jewish, and he said, nowhere in the Old Testament is the Messiah worshipped. And we were arguing about that text and about palach, the word in, the word in Aramaic. Uh, and so it, it, you know, it came down to uh, what does this actually mean? And, and it does come down to evidence. You say, well, look at every other instance of this word. It has to do with either... A, giving this to a true deity or not giving this to a false deity. And so you can claim it doesn't mean worship, <laughs> but every instance does seem to point to that. So, um, I mean, it's hard to... I've written a little book on hermeneutics. It's called 40 Questions About Interpreting the Bible and try to make a case for uh, an author-oriented uh, biblical understanding of, of interpreting the Bible. So that's... Uh, I think it's a big question, it's an important question, but I don't know if anyone has anything to add to that. That's a short answer, Patrick, but it's an important question, and, and hermeneutics is, is big. You know, what does the text mean, and how can we be confident that we know what it means? Thank you. Hi, my name is Tony Papadikis. I live in Southern Maryland. I'm pursuing a PhD in Biblical Studies at Lancaster Bible. Uh, Aramaic question, um, has there been any thought of expanding the daily dose uh, approach to cover uh, Targum's Onkelos Jonathan and or uh, the Peshitta, given their history and their importance for the Old Testament? Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> because okay. of the nature of my corpus, I'm actually the newcomer among, you know, the four here, and I'm going to finish first in the material in the Bible. So the <laughs> I'll finish last. <laughs> uh, I don't think so. Well, <laughs> That's because of your pace, not because... <laughs> I have to do the whole Bible. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> So uh, if you've been following Daily Dose of Aramaic, you know that occasionally the Targums show up, and they'll begin showing up more, especially when the biblical material is done. So yes, there has been thought to that. And the Peshitta? You know, we'll get there. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I had noticed, my name is Noah Lett, and I'm from... Birmingham, Alabama, where I presently live, which is why I don't have an accent. Um, but I, uh, I'm from Indiana. In none of the titles and none of the breakout sections I've been to, there's been no discussion of the value and use of interlinears as opposed to parallel things, you know, English and Hebrew or Greek over here. There was no discussion of the value and use of interlinears to help us move along to get to where we want to get to. Could you speak to that? Well, we're going to be giving away a few interlinears here in a moment. Um, I do think um, it is true that many times language professors are dismissive of interlinears. Uh, one reason they are is I think they, they don't want people to be, to be you know, if so, say someone's recovering from a surgery and they first need a wheelchair, uh, then they need a walker. Uh, you don't want to be like, hey, just keep using this walker. It's safe. You want to say, it may not feel safe, but 
use a cane, then try to walk without a cane so you get your balance back. So the, the, the interlinear is a little bit like a walker and it, it can, um, the concern I think is that people can be, can get stuck at that level. Uh, the nice thing I like about this interlinear we're gonna give away is it has a plastic card you can insert it and cover up the English text so you can use it like a plain Greek text if you like, so. Any, you guys want to add anything? Um, my name is Destiny. I'm from California. And my question is, I've learned Hebrew with Dr. Howell, who's a great professor. But as I'm preparing to learn Greek and maybe someday Aramaic, what kind of heart attitude should I cultivate about those languages? Because I did not expect to love Hebrew, and I ended up loving it. And now my fear is, well, I'm not going to like Greek or Aramaic as much. So. You're not wrong. <laughs> See, a parable, there was someone who had never had ice cream before. <laughs> and then they tasted vanilla, like, this is amazing. And that's the stage you are. But there's chocolate. There's chocolate waiting for you. I, I think people do tend to prefer one of the major Old Testament languages to the other just merely because of what they had first or, I mean, because they fell in love with biblical languages via, say, Hebrew or, or Greek or something like that. However, you don't want to stop there. You want the whole Bible, you know, and, and your love for the word of God will propel you. Um, just recognize that you will probably care for one more than the other because of those factors, as well as, you know, just the structure of a language. Maybe you identified more with it. Um, the Hebrew and Aramaic have a simpler structure, I think, grammatically and syntactically than Greek does. Maybe you like that simplicity. On the other hand, maybe you like complexity. You got a language for that, too. If you, if you love Hebrew, you'll love the other ones, I'm almost certain. Yeah, and I, I think when you ask about heart attitude, like having had you in class, you, you already have the right heart attitude toward the language to learn it, to love it, to dive in with everything that you have. So, so yeah, and you may find out after Greek that, um, that you, you prefer one over the other, and you don't have to come back and apologize to me for that when you, when you enjoy Greek. So. I, I thought you were almost going to say that you prefer Greek. It's like you came up to the edge. And <laughs> that I prefer yeah, Greek. You, no, no, that you said it could be after you learn another language that you prefer I thought you were going to say Greek. I did. I thought, you said prefer one over the other. Oh. <laughs> it's like you came up to the edge of the cliff and then you backed away. Yeah. Please step away from the cliff. <laughs> Hello, gentlemen. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. And uh, it's just great. Just fantastic. Uh, my name is Tom Chittam. Uh, I actually have an MDiv and a THM from Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. And now I and my friend Jesse, who's here, teach uh, Greek in a uh, secular work environment. Uh, with a number of people. We're always looking for new students and training them up and things like that. Uh, so anyway, so here's my question. Uh, I'm speaking to you in English, and we see German and Aramaic and Hebrew and Latin. Where's daily dose of theological German? Just wondering. <laughs> well, there, there is. Um, that's not my mission, right? I, I don't feel like that's my mission. But there is, uh, there is, is someone who contacted me and said, hey, do you mind if I start something similar? We won't call it the same thing. I was like, yeah, it's great. He started daily portion of German. <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure how consistently he's doing it right now. It's a, if you Google Erasmus Academy daily portion of German, he, uh, his videos are longer, they're 15, 20 minutes, and they're often him and a student talking through a text. So um, so recommend that. Um, you, there's a lot of, there are a lot of resources out there just generally in German. The News in Slow German is a good website. You have French in Slow German, News in Slow German. There, there's, if you're at the very beginning with German, you can watch Muzzy, M-U-Z-Z-Y, which is a cartoon that the BBC has created that you learn German interactively and intuitively. But the daily portion of German, I think, is something you look into. Thank you. Hello, my name is Ryan Scannell. I'm from Wisconsin. Um, as we are working in the biblical languages, uh, what are the most common or most dangerous interpretive errors that we must be aware of? Well, again, it's a great, it's a hermeneutic question, isn't it? And, I mean, I would argue uh, that probably the, 
biggest danger with hermeneutics is to not accurately reflect what the text, the biblical author is teaching, right? to make it say something other than the biblical author said. And there's certain levels of, of danger there. There's one is you could say something the text is not saying, like in Philemon uh, chapter 1, verse 6, the, the NIV 84 says, I pray you may be active in sharing your faith so you have a knowledge of every good thing we have in Christ. And to say you're active in sharing your faith, everyone hears that as evangelism, but it's not about evangelism. So, and I've heard, I've seen people teaching on that as evangelism. So that's not a theological error, but it's a hermeneutical error. But then, then there's even a greater error of to teach things that are not true or that are heretical or that are wrong um, based on a text. So failing to, I mean, one reason we want to read the text in the original language is so we can really get as close as possible to the biblical authors to reflect accurately what they're teaching. Thank you. Hey, you guys have time for one more yeah, or sure. whatever. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, so I'm a senior in high school. Um, so I'm kind of a, in a different stage of life than a lot of people I've met here. But um, I was just thinking of <laughs> what, um, if you guys could go back and redo your journey with the biblical languages, what would you have wanted to know? And I guess that's helpful for anyone um, like if they're starting uh, their journey with biblical languages. Um, yeah, so I was wondering, what would you want to redo or want to have known um, or do differently? I would have, uh, I would have started sooner. Um, I, uh, I took three years of Spanish in high school and only two were required. That third one's because I just enjoyed it, but I didn't pay attention to the fact that I enjoyed it. I don't really know what I was thinking, but uh, I told the Hebrew, Hebrew review class this week that a lot of my journey has kind of been just doing the next right thing, and I didn't give it a whole lot of thought. And so, so going into college, I had a good friend who was a physical therapist. His dad was a physical therapist, so I want to do physical therapy. Dropped the physical therapy program. Okay, let's do a medical doctor. So I did an undergraduate degree in microbiology and chemistry. Um, I wish that had been in linguistics because now having done the languages, I know how much I enjoy that so I would have just started earlier um, I don't know if that you know there's not a lot of <laughs> you know import into into that but I would have started earlier which is kind of where you are starting earlier I, that's exactly the same thing I thought <laughs> I would have started earlier there's a guy I knew in grad school who said well I start I've been doing Latin since I was six and I just hated him a little bit <laughs> so it's like I don't have the option of going back in time and starting when I was six. But you can't do anything about that. I, I would say, I think you're, for language learning, your primary mental metaphor should be farming or gardening. And this comes from some recent experience for me. But you stand there and you water a plant or you wait for the rains to come and you see nothing for just a heartbreakingly long amount of time. But when it comes, and this is why so many people take up gardening in life, uh, even if they don't need to garden for veggies or whatever, they, it's so rewarding to see the precious, beautiful life come up out of the soil and grow in strength and sustain itself. And, and uh, I think language learning, my experience of language learning has been like that. You can achieve a lot quickly. I'm not saying it'll take forever for you to enjoy language learning. No, you can enjoy it right away. But for really uh, deep joy and... and, and um, again, maybe the word, maybe mastery is not the right word, but success in language learning, just expect that it's going to take a lot of patience. But keep sowing the seed and keep waiting and you'll see it. It's worth the wait. But it takes a, it takes a while. It's a great, great question, Bella. We're going to have to make this the last one so we can give a few things away and so that you can um, visit the bookstore before they close at 7 if you want to be there today. Um, all right, my name is Araga Enya. I'm originally from Ethiopia. Um, I came here 2003. Um, I used to fear um, in a, regarding the New Testament. Um, the reason is it's Greek to me. Uh, people used to say that, and I say, well, if it is Greek to him, why should I <laughs> jump into it? So uh, now when I like study Arabic and I see the Muslims, how they train their children to read the Quran and um, uh, Islamic scholars encouraging them. 
Uh, yet our church, for example, I can say, oh, uh, King James Version says this, uh, New International says that, and this says, it just causes confusion. Uh, why we didn't start kids to teach them about the biblical language, I don't understand. It just bothers me. Because the younger, um, now I'm 50, 52, I wish I knew that uh, at age seven or eight, I could have grasped a lot of things and would have been much better to serve the Lord and to understand the language. And that is problematic because I just, people say it is Greek and I didn't go there. So why, why is it in the Western world that we didn't tend to teach children the biblical language? And then um, my second question is, um, uh, for example, in uh, Aramaic memra uh, that we have been uh, learning, uh, to understand the logos, you have to go back to the New Testament, the Old Testament, and especially if you know um, memra or the, the word in uh, Aramaic, you can easily understand, grasp more uh, about Jesus, the deity of Jesus Christ. How do you, is that true or is that fascination? I want to know. Yeah, thank you. And Scott, I'm going to let you re reply to this while I get some books that we're going to give away here. So I guess we're doing the second question there. <laughs> okay, so why, why do we not teach uh, biblical languages in church? Well, I don't know. No, just kidding. Uh, no, I, I, I think that... Uh, you know, they're competing influences, right? So we believe that the word of God can be translated unlike the Muslims, right? So the word of God can be translated into any language because it's the message. And the Bible itself, by having multiple languages, indicates that the word of God can be put in more than one language. So I think that heritage of Bible translation teaches us that we're okay with our native language being able to express the word of God. You did, however, bring up the issue of the multiple translations in the modern church, which is an unusual situation that's the embarrassment of riches kind of thing. You know, so Martin Luther translates the Bible into German. There's one German Bible, but now we have so many English Bible translations. So that's a little bit of a separate issue from why you know, should, should we or should we not teach the biblical languages in church? And that goes to the wise use of translations. And the wisest use, one would hope, would uh, include the, the user being familiar enough with the biblical languages to make some good judgments about the use of the English translations rather than, ooh, I like what this says, just from a, how it sounds or how it supports a personal theory standpoint, like the sharing of the faith in Philemon. And then... The second question uh, was an Aramaic-related question about the, the memra of the Lord, you know, and how that would uh, inform our understanding of the, the logos. So from the New Testament perspective, given that it's Greek, I, I think it does make sense to look at it from a Greek perspective. That's the inspired text. Um, it certainly would also make sense to bring in the biblical background, you know, and in the Old Testament, without even res resorting to a one-for-one -one correspondence of an Aramaic word, perhaps lying in the background of Logos, you, you do see that the messenger of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, and the arm of the Lord function as the Lord, you know, in Old Testament texts. So how about this? How about let's continue to robustly talk about the Greco-Roman culture? and everything like that. But let's not forget the main background of the New Testament. Here we go. The yeah. Old Testament. Yeah, great.